Amen. You can grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. So glad you're with us this morning, the week after Easter. Easter is our kind of high day within the church calendar. And so the week after Easter is sort of church hangover week. I don't know how you're feeling. If you're just pumped to be here, if you kind of did church last week and now you're here again and you're not sure, thank you for being here. I do want to ask you how excited you are to be here. And I know that when I say that, there's a lot of like weird sort of cultural questions that you might have of like, is this a church where you're supposed to like, woohoo, or is this a church that's kind of a nod church? We span the spectrum. Feel free. I will say uh, when we've had like loud vocal ameners, I'm not expecting it. We don't have that often. And so I generally talk over it. I'm not mad. I just didn't know you were going to do that. So <laughs> totally fine. It is difficult, as somebody who leads a group, to know what the right sort of tone is, energy-wise, because you want to kind of meet people where they are and turn the volume up some, but if you go too far, you're kind of out on a limb. Most famous example of this, in my mind, um, former CEO of Microsoft, a guy named Steve Ballmer, and there was a time, I don't know if it was like, it was this meeting, they had this huge sort of conference room, massive, 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 like giant hotel conference room. And they have thousands and thousands of Microsoft employees. And Steve Ballmer, CEO of Microsoft at the time, wants to come on stage and get everybody excited. And the way that he does that is he way overdoes it with his energy. So he comes up, CEO of one of the largest companies in the world, comes up onto the stage screaming like a lunatic for everybody to get up, get up. And he had this music playing, the get on your feet. And that like was playing through the room. He was looking cool. He had like his cool pleated khaki slacks on as he's jumping up and down, screaming like a madman for people to get up because I love this company. And his voice keeps cracking as he's doing it. And you know that everybody in the room feels a painful sense of awkwardness. Nobody is going with him on this. They're just sort of clapping along, happy they have stock options. They're not like in love with that company, of course. Now, take that sort of concept into here. I am not going to try and make you do that. I don't know that that would be helpful. However, we actually do have things to be that excited about. My concern is not for you to flip out and scream. My concern, though, is for you to understand the things that should make you want to flip out and scream. Does that make sense? Last week, we talked about the big one, Easter, the resurrection, the idea that Christ has died and been risen, meaning that he has taken our sin, he sacrificed himself for what we've done to break God's law, and being raised from the grave is this evidence that that not only God has accepted it, but that it's true. If he had just stayed dead, he'd be number 75,000 out of however many people have claimed to be something miraculous, have claimed to be something big, and then they die, and then the movement ends. Not so. There was a resurrection that took place. That resurrection, that historical fact, is Christianity. And yet, there's another fact after that, one that takes place about 40 days later, In the history of the church, the church calendar kind of addresses it in that same sort of interval. I'm going to go ahead and talk about it today because we don't really follow church calendars in that same way, but it's incredibly important. 
And it's something that is supposed to help you go from what I think most people sort of live in, the sort of neutral that most people live in with Christianity, to the great joy that God has for you. I'm talking about the ascension of Christ. I'm talking about after being raised, he's with his disciples for a period of time. He shows them that he's not dead, he's alive. And then he's taken up into heaven. And you would expect that to make the disciples very sad. They thought they were going to be sad. It says in the Gospel of John, in John 16, 5 and 6, Jesus is talking in the, it's called the Upper Room Discourse, is Jesus talking to his disciples the night before he's going to go to the cross. So this is, he knows this is his last night. They understand that he's told them this, but they don't really know. They're just normal people, but they're listening to Jesus as he's telling them he's going to be killed. And he says to them, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where you're going. But because I have said these things to you, because I've told you that I'm going away, sorrow has filled your heart. Well, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't sorrow fill the heart of Jesus' disciples at the news that Jesus is going away? Wouldn't you feel the same way? This is Jesus. This is Jesus who could fix all the problems. Jesus who always knows what's next. Jesus who, when there's a million people out in the middle of nowhere with no food, just multiplies food. Jesus who walks into funerals and just wakes up the dead person. This is Jesus who fixes the problems, has the wisdom, is the leader. And he's telling them that he's leaving. Well, of course they're going to be sorrowful. And yet, when he actually leaves, they react in a totally different way. In the Gospel of Luke, this is kind of our main text for today. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn or you can tap, if you have a digital copy of the Scriptures, to Luke chapter 24. This is our main text, even though we're going to bounce all over the place through the Bible, kind of addressing this idea of the ascension. Turn, tap, Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen, and we'd love to give you a copy of the Scriptures on your way out in a modern English translation. But in Luke chapter 24, this is the very end of the gospel. So this is the end of the story that Luke is telling about Jesus' life, death, and then resurrection. Now we're getting into his Jesus' final words before he ascends into heaven. That's what it says. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, that's a town right by Jerusalem, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is what he was saying was going to happen. And instead of being sorrowful, it says 52... And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. That's what I want us to figure out. Here's your mystery. How do they go from sorrowful at the prospect of Jesus leaving to the actual event of Jesus leaving and they feel great joy? You need this. You need this because if you're a believer, you're being told all the time about this stuff that God has for you, this stuff that you're being called to, these impossible feats of faithfulness and resisting temptation, these impossible feats of ministry, taking his name out into the world. That's what they're telling this guy, these guys to do, that they're supposed to take this mission out all into the world. 
And yet, most Christians, most of the time, when you talk to them about what God has called them to do, stare back at you with a look of exhaustion. Really? How can, I, how can my life possibly be harder than it is right now? They don't have a joy that means they've got this excess energy, this excess hope. Most of the people I know tend to live in a sort of uh, just kind of bracing themselves from whatever tomorrow's going to bring. If that's you and you're a Christian, let me tell you, you need this. If you're one of these many people who are investigating Christianity, I want you to see from the inside slightly what it is that we really are supposed to be living. I want you to understand the core message that should be bringing you great joy. Imagine you're one of these disciples. Jesus has just told you that your mission is to take the word, this gospel that he's proclaimed, that he is God's son, that he has died for sins, that he has been raised, and that if you will have faith in him, if you'll have trust in him, he'll forgive your sins and bring you into God's family. That message, God has just told you, it's your job to take that message to all the world, but you have to start in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the place where Jesus was just killed. If I was going to start that mission and that ministry, I might go somewhere where the leader of the ministry hadn't just been killed so that I might not be about to be killed. But Jesus said, no, you got to start in Jerusalem. The leader is this Peter cat who was only just restored from a terrible failure. One of their number, there's only 12 of these guys, one of their number just hanged himself after selling Jesus. He was the betrayer who sold Jesus to the people who killed him. This is not a great place to start. And Jesus is leaving them. That's not generally what you would think of as ready to run itself. <laughs> but Jesus is leaving, and they have great joy for two reasons. And there are two reasons that though our situation is much more hopeful than theirs was, we still have access to. These two reasons you and I still have access to. One, they remembered where he was going. They remembered where he is. And two, they trusted in the one that he sent. Now, both of those are kind of cryptic, but we're going to unplug them, uh, unpack them. One, they remember where he is. Jesus leaves them. But he's not just leaving them, he's going up to heaven. It says in this passage in Luke that he was carried up into heaven. Luke, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts, which is not the next book in the sort of way that we organize the New Testament, but it's kind of the next book. You know, if you finish the Gospels, then the book of Acts makes sense because it starts right where the other Gospels end. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, Luke tells the exact same experience, but he, he kind of elaborates on it a little bit, and he said, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's important. It's important because if you're steeped in Scripture, you'll know that that cloud thing means something. If you're not, and you're just one of the disciples, and you've been watching Jesus' ministry, you know that that cloud thing means something. If you're just like us, and you're not really either one of those, I'm still here to tell you. The cloud thing means something. Jesus didn't just disappear. It's not like smoke bomb, and then he's gone. Jesus is taken up in a cloud. They know where he's going because of how he's leaving. 
That cloud business matters. That cloud business is something that happens throughout Scripture. It's a way in which God represents himself. In Jesus' ministry, there's a point we call the transfiguration. $5 word, but it means it was the point where Jesus transfigured himself, transformed himself for a moment and showed something of his glory to three of his disciples that he brought up away from the others for a moment. In this moment, Jesus is revealed slightly... I can't imagine it was fully, or Peter and these guys would have just had their heads explode. But he's revealed somewhat in his glory, and Moses and Elijah are there. Moses and Elijah start talking with Jesus, and Peter says something kind of dumb. And then a whole cloud fills the space where they're meeting, and from the cloud comes the voice of God, and he declares Christ to be the Christ and his son. Then the cloud disappears, Moses and Elijah disappear, Jesus is back to looking like Jesus had looked. The cloud was something of God's presence. You go to the Old Testament, one of the most famous scenes in the Old Testament is God bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then in this kind of wilderness place where God is meeting them on Mount Sinai, his presence is represented on this mountain with a cloud. Kind of more than a cloud. There's a lot going on there, but at least a cloud. As he leads the people of Israel through the wilderness to the promised land, he leads them with a cloud by day and this big column of fire by night. More famously, and probably more importantly, is that Jesus' ministry, along with the transfiguration, highlighted this idea that being lifted up, being taken away in a cloud like this, is the way that you kind of know he's from heaven and sitting in heaven to return to that kind of final moment. Christianity has this idea that Christ is going to come back and that coming back, he's going to make all things new. There's some famous places in scripture I want to take you to briefly to help you understand why this should give you some joy. It, It continues in Acts chapter one, while they were gazing into heaven as Jesus went, behold, two men stood by them and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Disciples just watched Jesus ascend into heaven. I think that's okay to just sort of keep watching for a second. But the angels are like smacking him on the back of the head saying, What are you still looking into heaven for? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's keying into something, a theme throughout the teaching of Jesus. It says in Luke 21, and this happens in other places in the gospel, where Jesus is teaching about his return one day. And he says, And then they will see the Son of Man, that's a phrase that Jesus often used to describe himself, a way to key into the Daniel passage we're going to read in just a second. They will see that the Son of Man is coming in a cloud with power and great glory. He's describing this idea of coming back from heaven. How do you know that? Well, this cloud thing. And the main kind of passage that he's referencing is from this prophet named Daniel. In the Old Testament, you have these prophets. And this one guy, Daniel, has all these crazy stories. Daniel and the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar's big furnace. If you've kind of had a children's Bible ever, these are some of the stories that you see. Well, that Daniel guy also had these visions from God. And he saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Here's why I want you to see this. This Jesus wasn't just a man. And he wasn't just a man who was killed and somehow raised from the dead. He is God 
in the presence of God. Scripture's teaching this. It's telling you that this one, like the Son of Man, verse 14 of Daniel 7, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What am I saying? I'm saying we know the guy who wins. Why should you have great joy at him leaving? You should have great joy at him leaving because of where he's going to. He's going to heaven. He's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father on high. He is given his throne. He is given his authority. And you know that guy. That's what we're saying. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about saying that you, by faith, can know this Jesus, that you can have access to God by this Jesus, that that Jesus sitting on that throne with all of that dominion and all of that authority and all of that glory and majesty knows you. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. We have some friends here from a different hometown that I grew up in. And their friends, our mutual friend, is a, a YouTube sensation, I'll say. <laughs> Maybe overstepping? I don't really know. They have lots and lots of views. I can't imagine the number of views they have. They're a sensation. Now, I know that guy's name, and he knows my name. I wouldn't call us friends. But to my girls, oh my gosh, my parents know these YouTube people. And I maybe overstep a little bit in talking about how well I know these people. I don't really know them very well. But my girls think that I know them. Because, you know, I know their names. They know my name. We're not close. But I like being able to tell my girls, oh, these people, these YouTube people that to your mind are just as famous as the president or anybody else in the world. Yeah, I know them. <laughs> I know, they know me. It gives me a little bit of cachet, you know, with my kids. It matters. There was somebody in the last service that went to the church of a guy, the, the pastor of that church, is a very famous pastor. And they know that guy, and they were able to talk stories about that guy. And I'm kind of a fanboy of that guy. So I'm sitting there like, really, really? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you knew him. You knew him. You know him. I almost asked if they had his cell phone. I know that they wouldn't give it to me, but I almost asked. There's a thing. There's a, there's a moment where you realize this guy knows that guy. This guy has access to that guy's what? That guy's power. That guy's authority. That guy's willingness. That guy's impressiveness. That guy's what? They had great joy because watching Christ go up to heaven in that way, they knew that he is going to be seated at the Father in that glory and that they know that guy. That even though they're terrible and even though they're sinful and even though they're broken and even though they're Peter, they know that guy. They've been forgiven by that guy. The question, of course, is do you know that guy? Do you know that Jesus? The promise of Christianity, the offer of Christianity is that you can. You can. He is seated on that throne right now. The facts about him have been given that you might believe. It says that at the end of John's gospel, that he wrote what he wrote, that for generations and millennia, the people who read that story might believe and in believing have life in his name. And you say, not me too sinful for that. The idea that you would be introduced to Jesus, you would refuse that invitation, not because you don't want him, because you don't think he would want you. Well, no, that's the whole, 
That's the whole point of all of this. It says in 1 John 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The whole point of Jesus' life as a person was for him to associate with us as people. The whole point of his death on a cross was to endure what we have done, the punishment we have earned with our disobedience towards God. If you think you're not allowed to stand before God in his presence, that means you're a candidate for Christianity. If you don't, if you think you're pretty sure that God's going to be impressed with you, well, he didn't come for the healthy. You got a lot we got to teach you. If you really are convinced that God can't love you, that he shouldn't love you, now you're ready. You're ready to experience the love of a God who has died for you and this Christ who now stands before God the Father and says, Lord, (laughs) you can't send these people away. I've died for these people. That he stands before the throne as the lamb who was slain with his holes in his hands and the big gouge in his side to say, no, 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 I've carved his name on my hands. I have written her name on my hands. They can't go away. They've been forgiven. That's what Christianity is. That you can be forgiven. And if you feel that, if you understand that, then of course you rejoice that his humiliation is over and that his glorification has happened. Yes, of course you can sing with the disciples and with the ones who will sing in Revelation 5, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. And amen. Do you see? Do you see why they're rejoicing? They know where he is. They know that he's seated at the right hand and that he is now their advocate before the Father. And should you need something else? They trust in the one that he sent. In our passage, it talked about how they were clothed, they would be clothed with power. Jesus is referencing what he talks about a lot in that upper room discourse in the later chapters of John, what he talks about a lot in uh, Acts. In the first part of Acts, he promises it briefly, and then boom, it happens in the first chapter or second chapter of Acts. That God would send what's called the helper. Now, that's actually a helpful translation of the word paraclete. That's the Greek word that's being used in those ancient texts. God is saying that he's sending the helper. Old translations, they used to say the comforter. That's because comforter used to mean something a little bit different in English. Helper is actually a little bit of a better word. The reference in the Greek, that word paraclete, means the, it would be like the family attorney. You get into trouble, you call the family attorney. Now, I'm going to hope that many of you don't really know what that's like. You have to either be very wealthy or very suspicious to have a go-to family attorney. You can imagine that you're having some sort, not you, one, is having some sort of problem in the Hamptons and you call dad and dad tells you to just call the family attorney and that he would come and take care of the situation, be the fixer. God is talking about that with us, that your father in heaven does send the helper to be with you. Now, it's so much bigger than that, but it's not less than that. The scripture talks about this, this one that comes, the Holy Spirit who comes, the one who comes and gives life. The, the description of creation that God is speaking out, his breath goes forward and, it, and 
the, the creation goes from nothingness to being. All of these different places in creation go from dead to living. Dead dirt becomes all of these plants. Dead dirt becomes you and me. Lifeless water becomes stirred with all of these animals. You seen the big humpback whale that's now coming out of one of our roundabouts up at 9th and 9th? Yeah, read about that. Yeah, those are real things, though. They exist, and they float and fly through our little oceans. The, the skies are now going to be filled as the Holy Spirit and the breath of God goes out, and it's now filled with life, all these flapping, beautiful, singing birds. Life. He, he speaks, and this life comes. The Holy Spirit has come, and he brings life. The Scripture describes him as giving power for service. You go throughout the Old, Old Testament, it talks about these moments where God's servants are filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they go forward and they do wonderful, scary, magnificent, awful, crazy, wild things. I'm talking about the negative ones, are almost all in the book of Judges. But the rest of it is just God speaking through and doing amazing things through these people as he empowers them with the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I'm saying that if you know Christ, you've been given that Holy Spirit. You have that same power empowering you for these great acts of service, that the Holy Spirit purifies the church. I mean, it's an awful thought, but we are supposed to constantly be seeing each other. It's kind of the slogan for Hope Church, fully known, fully loved, that we know one another and knowing each other, oh, we still love one another. We're going to get past the sort of pretty exterior that you're able to build over yourself and get to know the real you and knowing the real you we're still going to love you. And the only reason that we can do that is because of how God has taught us, how he loves us. And yet, yeah, we're not going to leave each other in these destructive patterns. We're going to try and help each other out. The Holy Lord purifies his church, and he does it as the Holy Spirit empowers his people, that the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to individuals. Oh, my gosh. The weight of trying to communicate to you the splendor of God, much less to try and communicate to you the truth of the gospel in such a way that you will believe, receive, and then change your whole life? Of course I can't do that. Of course you can't do that. You get excited and you go and you start sharing about this Jesus that you love that has changed everything for you with a friend, a person from, from way back when, a friend, a person now that you've met, and you just feel like your words are so clunky and wooden and gross. You wouldn't believe it if you were saying what you're saying, but you're just trying. You're trying to communicate God and his glory, what he's done through Christ for you. Do you have any hope that those people are going to believe and turn? Well, yeah, you do. Not because of your words, not because of your eloquence, which you don't have, but because of the Holy Spirit that brings life through you, that he gives to individuals the knowledge of Christ, that he guides and directs God's people. If Hope Church really rested on the leadership of Hope Church... You shouldn't go here. I know the leaders of Hope Church. If Hope Church really rested on the leaders of Hope Church, but it doesn't. We say that Jesus is the shepherd. He's the high king. He has sent his Holy Spirit to lead his church. And so, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, as we read the scriptures, by God's grace, Hope Church continues to exist. That the Holy Spirit manifests the Lord's presence, that he gives assurance, that he teaches and illumines, that he unifies, that he acts as a seal of our salvation and presence of the Father. We could go on and on and on and on and on about what this helper has come and done. 
And if you understand that, if you believe that, if you start to mine the scriptures and see that, if you start to live Christianity out and witness it, how could you not be filled with great joy? Ah, brothers and sisters, if you will really see, if you'll really remember, if you'll really believe, oh my gosh, you'll be filled with this power. See, we don't, we leave it off to the side for, for several reasons. But one of them is we just, we've been tempted by the enemy. We kind of just are self-reliant rather than God-reliant. The concept of being clothed with power from on high is this radical humility that says he is going to work through me rather than me working and then taking the credit. And yet, again, if you're the kind of person who says, no, I'm not well, I'm sick then you might really be ready to rely on the Spirit. When we talk about these great kind of missional things that we hope people are called to and equipped by God to go and do. And usually we kind of imagine them in a foreign land somewhere. Hope, uh, Hope Church is trying to reach out to our valley, and our valley just really has very few people who have our understanding of who God is. So our mission really is very local. But you imagine these sort of grand, beautiful, wonderful, dangerous things that people will go out and do. I would also submit that probably one of the things that's harder is just to keep living your life on a regular daily basis and resist temptation. Have you ever really tried to resist temptation? It's impossible. It feels impossible. It feels like walking on water. It feels impossible. Well, how do you do it? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says it. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It says right there that no matter how bad this temptation feels, if you trust this promise, you can endure it. It doesn't seem like it, but it's true. Take that example and put all of Christianity into the same bucket. It seems impossible. But if you trust what he said, if you rely on his power, all of a sudden it happens. Brothers and sisters, and people who are just sort of sussing this all out, come to this Jesus and live. Trust in this Jesus and rejoice. Receive from this Jesus and be empowered. Let's watch what God does through his people for his glory. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, you know, the scriptures are very clear about what you've called us to and about the example that you've given us. And yet, Father, we are overwhelmed often. So I just, I'm going to read these verses and I pray, Lord, that you would make these verses true at Hope Church. Since... We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.